Hello and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast on the forefront of environmental policy brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm your host, James Adjipong Parsons. In this episode, we will be giving you the inside scoop on changes to how the health of water bodies in England is set to be reported. We're looking at how the Environment Agency has finally struck gold for its workers. And we'll be bringing you the green highs and lows from the first King's speech in 70 years. For the deep dive, we're going to be looking back at the Environment Act and what it's achieved so far, as well as what we're still waiting on. So, let's enter... The Eco Chamber! To talk me through the latest big green news, I'm joined by ENDS Features Editor Tess Colley and news editor Pippa Neal. Tess, last week ENDS got the inside scoop on changes to how national water quality data will be reported from 2025. Can you just bring me up to speed? Yeah, so you might have heard this figure before that 14% of England's waterways meet requirements for good ecological status and 0% for good chemical status. So these figures, they come from data collected under the Water Framework Directive and have been used for quite a while um, to track progress on, you know, how well or badly uh, the government's doing on cleaning up our waterways. What ENDS now understands is that the government plans to move away from these water framework directive indicators as measures of this national progress. And it's it's proving controversial in, in some quarters. Um, but what, what are the changes? We understand, after speaking with multiple sources who attended a, a private environment agency briefing uh, with NGOs, that data is still going to be collected and a full data set will be published in 2025. But this won't be used to come up with a national view, if you like, of the status of waterways or used to judge how uh, they've improved. It'll just be used for sort of local briefings. And the government's suggesting a, a different way to do that using something that's called the, the River Surveillance Network. So what we understand now, and by we, I mean Shosha Adi, who actually got this story, from the people that attended this briefing, that the assessments for each water body that make up this Water Framework Directive data may be based on samples taken from fewer points than in the 2019 set to, to maximise cost effectiveness, apparently. So basically be slightly less data potentially than has been before to make up this, this data set. But an EA spokesperson said that monitoring is risk-based, targeted areas and elements that are at the highest risk of where pressures are greatest, uh, therefore saying that not all elements and all water bodies are tested in every classification round. So what it sounds like to me and possibly other ecologists and policy wonks is a divergence from EU, previously Water Frameworks Directive, the way things were done then, to a new system, post-Brexit system, although we're going to have a kind of the results from the WFD as well. Uh, okay, maybe that's the, maybe different wants to cover itself. <laughs> um, am I right in thinking that's the general summary? That's the general summary. The fear is definitely about what this divergence will look like. Um, I should say this 2025 data is still set, is still, you know, as far as anyone understands, going to be a complete data set um, to meet the requirements of the Water Framework Directive. So there's no suggestion that the laws are intended to be broken. 
Um, and that will then be used to provide a baseline for the 2027 river basin plans, which are also part of that directive. Why this is interesting, and it was in, it was reported in one of the national newspapers as a, I think it was more of a scandal than maybe, well, it was reported in a way that made up the scandal that there was this change. But we've always known this change is coming. It's something that DEFRA has talked about for ages now. What this is about is how the data is presented and communicated and is it going to be maybe as transparent as it once was? And, you know, we know we're maybe moving away from something, but how are we moving away? We don't quite know what, how will there be changes to what data is actually collected? Potentially, we, we don't know. That's why this is interesting. And one of the things that a lot of, well, certainly NGOs, but a lot of people across the, the sector have sort of been expecting from these proposed potential changes to the Water Framework Directive is this idea of, getting rid of the one-in-one-out approach where, say, you're a water body and you f- you fail on one thing, maybe your chemical status is bad, therefore you fail the kind of whole ecological assessment. Um, and this is something that James Bevan, the former chief executive of the Environment Agency, was always talking about, being like, this could, this could really do a changing because it does not a good reflection. That just doesn't think it sounds That's a good like impression. <laughs> I, was, I thought he was in the room. Oh, thank you, James. Um, but this this is something DEFRA has said in a blog post last week, for those not following the DEFRA blog, um, that this will this one-in-one-out approach will be set to stay for 2025. So there you go. Okay. Do we know why these changes have been made? Well, from what Shosha was told by several separate attendees at, at this meeting, um, particularly the change the change about the... Um, the idea of taking samples from fewer locations. She was told that was the EA said this was in response to budget cuts and budget constraints. However, DEFRA has denied that this is the case, um, saying that you know no budget cuts have been forecast for 2025, uh, and in fact there's an increased budget for this period as outlined in the 2021 spending review. I think what I found quite interesting was an EA spokesperson um, turning ends in this story that. Uh, there may have been a misunderstanding in the meeting and rather there have been increased cost pressures due to increased monitoring and the cost of techniques and inflationary and wider cost increases that have impacted every sector and that might be the source of the misunderstanding Um, interesting interesting way to phrase it yeah 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 you don't you you didn't you you miss the nuance yeah (laughs) the quiet civil servants in the room (laughs) scratching their heads Ultimately, then, the EA is going to be the group responsible for testing our rivers in England, sorting out these river basement management plans. Do we know what they think, or at least publicly, what they think, Pippa? Yeah, publicly. So kind of despite all these concerns about what these potential changes will actually mean, um, an environment agency spokesperson maintains that improving water quality is one of their highest priorities. And they said, we work through plans established under the water environment regulations to guide our permitting and enforcement. This work must be driven by a clear evidence base. And we are working with partners to provide better information to enable this, including more real time data. They also said that the next comprehensive update of classifications in all water bodies will be 2025 and that no significant changes to the classification methodology are planned. So that does seem a little bit at odds with everything that's going on behind the behind closed doors. Um, but that's what they're saying publicly at the moment. Speaking of the EA then, last week staff called off a four day strike um, at the 11th hour. 
This would have been the latest in planned industrial actions, which ENS has covered uh, extensively since last December. Pippa, does this mean that the demands have been met? I don't think we can go so far as to say that. But what it does mean is that the Environment Agency now has permission to potentially negotiate a new pay offer for employees. Um, So basically, uh, ministers have allowed the Environment Agency kind of team to make use of a budgetary underspend. Um, And the union described this as the government effectively giving the Environment Agency permission to breach the Cabinet Pay Office remit because they can basically kind of use this underspend to like go above what the Cabinet Office kind of said was the pay across the Environment Agency and potentially negotiate better pay for employees. So that cap was, was it 2 3%? Uh, yeah, it was 3%. Um, and, you know, at the time, this was this was kind of widely slated, um, wasn't welcomed by um, the unions and staff as well. Um, uh, it was the union body Unison environment head Donna Rome Merriman who described it as an insult. Um, and she pointed out that after a decade of pay restraints, that environment agency wages have seen a real have seen a drop in real terms by 21 percent. OK, big numbers. And has she welcomed this move? Um she Well, she said, you know, ministers could have intervened ages ago, was her lines, and they could have helped to end this dispute before kind of it reached this reached this point. Like, environment agency staff have been taking some form of industrial action for over, over a year now. Um, and she, she said, at last, someone in government has seen sense and allowed the agency to do something managers there have wanted to do for months. That's using a budgetary staffing underspend to boost wages of its long-suffering workforce. She said, hopefully there's now a light at the end of the tunnel, both for employees and the communities that depend on the support of environment agency staff. Um, And she said that talks over the coming days will decide what happens next, but that there must be a long term solution to improve pay or it will be unable to rise to the challenges posed by our increasingly worsening weather. It is interesting timing, isn't it? Because we've just had Storm Kiran sweep through the UK, bringing sort of huge floods to part of the country. Um, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah, what it is, because they were due to, the EA staff were due to go out on strike on the day, well, on the day after, I believe, the the, the, the storm kind of absolutely ravaged through, like, the south of the country. Um, and it was clear, you know, it was clear to see that the, that could have been pretty bad news. I mean, DEFRA said, you know, it would have covered it in some way or some shape or form. Um but it's just that in the world where we're going to probably see more of these huge storms and more, you know, more bigger, wilder weather in little old Blighty, um, that funding places like the EA have to cope with it and try and manage it and, of course, try and mitigate against these things um, getting worse uh, is, is important. It's, it's, I, I don't think anyone um, planned to, to for, I, don't, I doubt the unions thought, oh yes, let's let's go on strike when the, when the storms do to happen. But it's inter- It's just yeah, makes you think. Makes you think, man. Mm. <laughs> uh, on Defra, then, what have they thought? Have we got their thoughts? Yeah, on this? they they well, of course, they said they were pleased that we we're able to move into formal negotiations with our unions following the approval of the EA's pay proposal. Uh, and a spokesman said they welcomed the unison decision to call off the industrial action as a result of this progress. Moving on then to our final big green news story, hot off the press, it's the King's speech. It marks a big moment in history and we'll get to that. Um, And there's been a lot of hype around the announcement so far, haven't there, Tess? Yeah, so it's the first King's speech in 70 years. Um, Big for all those that follow 
royal moments. Royal history. Royal history, which is, of course, all of us. Um, but yes, also there were uh, there were lots of environmental rollbacks feared in this speech. And because there's been so much rhetoric in the last few months um, from parts of government, including right at the top, Rishi Sunak, about how environmental red tape is usual stuff, holding Britain back from from being its best self and think of, you know, Nietzsche neutrality row, the row over ULES, the war on motorists, 15 minutes cities controlling your mind. Um, and of course, the government did actually delay a series of net zero measures just, just a month or so ago. And King Charles is quite well known for taking an interest in green issues. He's made kind of made it his thing, hasn't he? Um, well before it was talked about more widely. Well before the eco chamber was in existence, can you imagine the time? Um and there'd been a bit of, I think, speculative talk about how he would potentially hand on to read out any potential environmental rollbacks with a kind of deadpan royal face um, picking between climate or constitutional crisis. So that's why that's why there was hype. What is the damage then, Pippa? Did we see any blows to green policy? So the big thing that was kind of highly um, briefed to the media over the weekend was this new offshore petroleum licensing bill. So the king said that the legislation will be introduced to strengthen the United Kingdom's energy security and reduce reliance on volatile international energy markets and hostile foreign regimes, which is a line that we've heard quite a lot when it comes to North Sea oil and gas. Um, But in effect, the bill will support the future licensing of new oil and gas fields by introducing annual licensing. The king also said that ministers will seek to attract record levels of investment in renewable energy and reform grid connections, which is something we've also heard Rishi Sunak talk about before. And he said elsewhere that the government will continue to lead action on tackling climate change and biodiversity loss, although it's not really clear exactly how these two things line up but that is what he said and briefing notes which were published just after the speech say that this new legislation will make the UK more energy independent by increasing investor and industry confidence with these regular oil and gas licensing Um, and the bill will also have these emissions tests which will ensure future licensing supports the transition to net zero Basically, there's currently no fixed period between licensing rounds, and this legislation would require the North Sea Transition Authority to invite applications for new production licenses on an annual basis. And outside of energy, was there anything else that we're missing? Well, there was a few things that I think lots of green groups are probably breathing a sigh of relief that weren't in the speech. So as Tess kind of briefly mentioned, there was no plans um, to kind of axe neutrality, which is something that both Michael Gove and Therese Coffey had kind of implied could be in the King's speech. There was also, um, it was kind of reported last week that there could be new measures to kind of block ULES-style schemes. Yes. Um, that also didn't appear. So that's, I guess, you could say some good news in that it didn't go as far as some people might think thought it would in terms of kind of net zero rollbacks or environment policy rollbacks more broadly I should say but there were also some things that were were missing that I think some people green groups especially were hoping slash expecting that could be in the speech so that was there was nothing on plans to end trophy hunting in the UK something which has been championed by Zach Goldsmith Mm. and there was also nothing on plans to ban the sale of horticultural peat which is something that was consulted on last year. So, yeah, there was a few things that people will probably be happy that weren't in there, but lots of other things that green groups were kind of hoping would be there. 
It's important to say that we have just recorded this a few hours after the announcement itself. But Tess, can you give us some of the early reactions to the King's speech so far? Yeah, so Greenpeace were right on it. The head of politics, Rebecca Newsom, uh, was pretty scathing. She said that the King's speech just served as a vehicle for Sunak to further his desperate pursuit of short-term political point scoring at the expense of the public. Um, and, you know, she, you know, really focusing on that oil and, and gas licensing stuff. She, all the world's superpowers are investing heavily in green infrastructure, renewables and clean tech uh, because they know, she said, it will generate an economic growth and lead to, lead to this will, you know, ultimately stop the planet from burning. And she said, instead, our prime minister has decided to line up a licensing bonanza for his pals in the oil and gas industry that the government has already admitted won't lower bills and won't deliver energy security either she said. Um, the renewable sector wasn't best pleased either, as you can maybe imagine. Founder and chief executive of Low Carbon uh, raised that, you know, as a business focused, focusing on deploying large-scale renewable energy, uh, they believe that it's critical that the UK has sustainable long-term net zero policies, um, perhaps suggesting that this hadn't, hadn't helped. And I thought it was interesting also that the British Ecological Society commented. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you don't, you know, they don't always comment on everything. They noted that 2024 will be a key year for environmental policy in the UK. Uh, and they said in a country where one in six species is at risk of extinction, we need to see commitment to reaching net zero, commitment to supporting farmers to deliver for biodiversity, nature recovery and commitment to preventing sewage poisoning our rivers. Those are things, of course, which were not mentioned at all Uh in the king's speech um so yeah that that's what we've heard i mean there is still the possibility that such bills could come forward in parliament yeah but obviously we're gonna have to wait and see if this is them laying out their agenda it hasn't featured it's time now then for our moment of the week uh it's been a heavy week for news so hopefully we can inject some optimism into your week with some of our favorite stories anecdotes, thoughts, feelings, views. Uh, Pippa, Tess? Um, Mine has to be a story I saw on the BBC, um, which is quite a positive one, and that's that Britain's loneliest sheep has found a new home. Um, The ewe, who is named Fiona, was rescued on Saturday after being stranded for more than two years at the foot of cliffs in the Scottish Highlands. Um, She arrived at Dulscombe Farm under the cover of darkness, the BBC reported, and is said to be in a good condition. Um, And I I particularly liked this little snippet of information, and that's that the rescue operation, which was led by professional shearer Cammy Wilson, he came up with the name Fiona because several years ago it had caught his attention that a, um, a sheep in a similar, you know, desperate situation was actually rescued in New Zealand, and that sheep had been called Shrek. I thought. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) He's quoted in the BBC to have said, I thought Shrek is the male version of this situation, so it has to be Fiona. It's also a good Scottish name. Wow. I literally thought you would have made that up if you didn't tell me. Oh, wow. Um, Tess, have you got a moment of the week? I do. So it's actually also from the BBC. Praise be public broadcaster. So the number of jellyfish spotted in UK waters and on beaches has increased by 32% in the past year, according to a survey by the Marine Conservation Society. Uh, Apparently, most were on the UK's west coast, particularly Cornwall and Wales, and 11% were of large blooms of more than 
uh, 100% and the BBC have some great pictures if you want to go and look at some cool looking jellyfish. Uh, so yeah, that that's that's my moment. Awesome. I, I'm going to break the rule here. You should never actually show a photo in a studio when you're recording a podcast because your audience can't see it. But my moment of the week is I stumbled across the wrinkled peach fungus. <laughs> You can see, you can see oh, the, that's, uh, that's the guttation, the beautiful drops exuding from its gills there. Um, wrinkled peach, super rare, um, once common because of the Dutch elm disease, it rots on the old, the old elm tree and I found it in Hampstead Heath and that's my moment of the week. Oh, that's a pretty amazing. good moment of the week. Yeah, yeah I, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll share it on my socials guys so you can like, listeners, so you can follow it there. But yeah, wrinkled peach, moment of the week. On to our deep dive now as ENDS reflects on the Environment Act as it reaches its two-year milestone. Take a listen. So for our deep dive, to mark two years since the Environment Act came into law, I've got ENDS compliance editor Alice Villan here, who's our in-house legislation expert. Let's start with a bit of an overview of what the Act actually is and why it's such an important piece of legislation. Okay, so the Environment Act uh, received royal assent on the 10th of November two years ago, so 2021, but it it had a bit of a bumpy ride before it got there, so it was in the works since October 2019, didn't get through Parliament uh, at that initial point, had to be rerun through, um, but it is a seminal piece of legislation because it's essentially it establishes a framework for the UK's environmental protection. And that sort of comes in that vacuum created by Brexit, doesn't it? Yeah, and it was explicitly designed to replace the role of the EU environmental law, or at least the EU as a framework for environmental law. And sort of what, there's a really wide-ranging legislation, but what are sort of the main parts of the environment that it covers? It covers a lot of different areas, so nature protection, air quality, water quality, some waste measures, um, and other environmental protection as well. So let's talk about some of those headline measures then that have come out of it um, in the past two years, maybe starting with these environmental targets that came out in January 2022. Yeah, so the uh, environmental targets were a set of duties put on um, the Secretary of State to set binding targets across a number of uh, areas. So, for example, um, on the levels of particulates in the air or um, targets in terms of biodiversity, water quality, waste reduction that sort of thing. They had to be fairly long ranging in terms of like they had to be at least 15 years in duration. Yeah, and, and I think they were quite controversial um, at the time because campaigners also wanted some legally binding interim targets. That that 15 year duration is quite a long period. Yeah, and the idea behind having binding interim targets is that you can make sure that you're on track to meet those 15 year targets before it's too late to remedy it. Yeah, and those weren't those weren't put into the law, um, but they were set out, which is something. There was also yeah. mixed opinions on those targets themselves, I think, and, and whether the consultations had really been taken into account. Um, but that's quite a lot to go into now. Yeah, and it's worth uh, noting that whenever you choose targets, especially for 
areas that are quite broad, there's always going to be some discussion as to are those the right targets? Should we have gone with something else? Do they align with other uh, regimes already in place? That sort of thing. So moving on then to the environmental principles, because that's another big part of the Environment Act. Tell me a bit more about the timeline and, and what they are. Yes, so um, arguably one of the wins of the Environment Act, I would say. Yeah, Um, the environmental principles um, are really, arguably, again, arguably, um, (laughs) superstars of environmental law. Um, The Environment Act 2021 does uh, enshrine uh, five environmental principles into law and these are arguably superstars of environmental law. Um, they're based in international environmental law, um, and they are the polluter pays uh, principle, which states that if you uh, say you are responsible for an oil spill uh, as a company, you should be made to pay for that. Which is quite sensible, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's it's a fairly intuitive one. Um, it's also well named. <laughs> um, then we've got the precautionary principle, uh, a little less obvious, but uh, it states that even if you don't have 100% scientific certainty where there is a risk, you don't wait for that 100% to take proportionate action. Um, So you can't postpone action just because you're not 100% clear on the science behind um, risk of environmental harm. Which is quite an important one for chemical legislation, isn't it? Yeah, it's huge. And it also is often in tension with uh, the innovation principles. So for commercial interests or um, research, sometimes there's a bit of tension there. Um, We've also got the integration principle, uh, which means that you have to integrate environmental protection in all relevant fields of policy. The prevention principle which states that the government has a duty to prevent and reduce environmental harm and the rectification at source principles. So the environmental damage or pollution is dealt with where it occurs. So those are all really good statements, aren't they? They're quite, you know, they're sort of what you'd imagine environmentalists really want to be hearing from the government. And have those, am I right in thinking, been sort of embedded across all of the government departments? Yeah, so that's the point. The point is to uh, make sure that that policy statement, uh, which was published in um, on 31st of January this year, although we expected it much sooner, but it finally was published, and it explains how the environmental principles should be interpreted and how they should be proportionately applied by ministers when making policy. So the key to that is that you essentially have those underlying principles running through law and policy. That seems like a good baseline. So in terms of the other big development from the Environment Act, um, the Office of Environmental Protection, so that's that body that basically stepped in to replace the functions of the European Commission and the European Court of Justice in terms of sort of holding the government to account on green standards. Um, Can you tell me a bit more on the timeline of that? Yes, so the provisions for the establishment of the Office for Environmental Protection um, came into force on the 17th of November 2021, so some of the earlier provisions to come into force there. And then it did take a while to get fully established But then in June, it published its enforcement policy and it means that 
some of its uh, main enforcement mechanisms are that they can apply for an environmental review or a judicial review in court where they find that uh, public authorities have failed to comply with environmental law. That's quite an important one, isn't it? Because I know like a lot of the discussions we've had around this is sort of whether they do have teeth. You know, it's a watchdog. Like, is it actually able to hold the regulators to account? Um, and I think that there has been a recent investigation, its first one, sort of into DEFRA, the Environment Agency and Ofwat, where it was looking at where they've... Um, sort of gone wrong in terms of regulating sewage spills and I think the finding was they've failed to comply perhaps with environmental law and we're waiting to hear the response from the government departments from that. So a lot of the times it's more a recommendation or something that's being highlighted so far isn't it? We haven't really seen those legal cases. Yeah so the bulk of its uh, action is going to be um, as a watchdog just note when there are issues and usually they'll um they'll still try to act with the public authorities so they'll notify them that you know maybe you've actually breached the law here um and then there is room for authorities to take action to remedy that before they get taken to court it's not a uh, a single sort of like go straight to court do not pass go. Um, <laughs> oh, we should turn this into a Monopoly game. That would be great. It would make things a lot easier to understand. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so let's think about some of those other wins then from the act, like the more positive measures perhaps. Um, the one that I've pulled out is how we've become the first country with a legal target to halt wildlife decline by 2030. Um, that was quite a big thing at the time. And it sort of was reinforced again at COP15 last year, sort of around yeah. about this time. Oh, my God, this year has gone so quickly. Um, it it is an interesting, an interesting one. one. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting one, uh, especially within the context of the UK being so wildlife depleted. Yes, we were looking earlier um, at the State of Nature report, um, me and Alice, and we were seeing that 19% of species have been found to have declined. Um, and that that's quite a big decline, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and then it's it also remains to be seen what the target achieves. It's one thing to have a target, it's another to actually work towards meeting it. Yes, and I think in our film, um, Wilderness, published earlier this year, it's a really good one to go and watch, we did explore whether those sort of, sort of protected sites in England are actually protected. Like, if we're talking about ring fencing, 30% of land for wildlife, like, what does that mean? Um, and the focus in that film is on Dartmoor, but it's still a really, really good report. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there is still a lot to be celebrated in the Act. Um, a kind of maybe small measure, but one that might be dear to the hearts of a lot of local campaigners, perhaps, is that the Act requires local highway authorities to consult with communities before felling street trees. Mm-hmm. Um, so some, some of the trees will qualify for exemptions, right? Um, but that is coming into force uh, at the end of this month on November the 30th. That's great, because I knew that was one that, um, yeah, local authorities were really keen to see. Yeah. So, brilliant. Uh, Moving on then to the more controversial measures, um, I know one that has been providing a lot of sort of, I guess, anxiety recently is the Act does also give the Environment Secretary powers to maintain and update that list of priority substances that we use to assess chemical status in water bodies, Mm. and that's per the Water Framework Directive. 
Um, we haven't seen the government use this one yet, but it doesn't necessarily mean they won't in the future. Yeah, and it does make sense to some extent to be able to have that ability because you do want to keep those uh, annexes up to snuff for <laughs> to account for progress, right? Like as you identify priority substances, you want to be able to add them on, for instance. Yeah, that's true. I think sometimes we forget with these measures, like it doesn't always have to be, you know, we're going to actually downgrade environmental standards. There's a real opportunity here. The government wanted to, to upgrade environmental standards. Yeah, and also so, these are things that need to move with uh, scientific progress as well. Yes. Just on that note, like currently no water bodies do meet the status for good chemical health in England. So, yes. Yeah, there were also concerns in terms of how to account for that, um, to gauge the chemical status in that sense. So if you change the, the metrics that you're using, obviously that means that like the comparison compared to earlier years is going to be more difficult. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of a, potentially a bit of a bait and switch there, I guess. And I think that goes back to sort of what was talked about in the Big Green News section this week um, with this new way that the Water Framework Directive measures will be reported from 2025. And that was sort of an ends um, scoop on that matter. So definitely one to keep an eye on, I think, in the future. Yeah, 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 definitely one. Um, there was also powers for the Secretary of State to amend REACH and the REACH Enforcement Regulations. Uh, what do you think about that one? So it's a little bit similar in that this is a fast-moving area of law where you identify um, new chemicals that need to be um, added to a um, a list to either to restrict it or to kind of like to have specific authorization. Um, but primarily, again, it's not unusual to have those uh, powers. You you do need them to some extent. Um, so in theory. It's not necessarily a material change in terms of the substance of the law, but in practice, maybe that's a little bit different. You could, you could kind of, um, you could see, for instance, um, changes to timelines where that isn't a material change, but in terms of what that means uh, for for the presence of chemicals in our environment that can have a disproportionate impact. Yes, and I think that has been something that has come up because there's those deadlines to submit dossiers on like the hazards of certain chemicals have been yeah. extended um, for each of the classes. So I think there are real concerns there. And again, it comes down to how those powers are wielded, maybe. Yeah, it's also a reflection of uh, leaving um, an environment where you have the structure of 27 other countries uh, all banding together to monitor these chemicals. And then suddenly we are in a situation where the UK authorities have to do it all themselves to some extent. Mm. Yeah, it's a big change. Yeah. And then the last one to mention under that is, of course, their powers to amend the habitat regulations. Um, I know this has been a recent debate in terms of nutrient neutrality as well, but that's the stormy water seems to have calmed. Mm. But now whether it's the calm for another storm, I don't know. But mm. maybe we'll we'll leave that one this yeah, time. Yeah, we'll just have to keep uh, keep it under review. <laughs> <laughs> so a big one that it is definitely worth talking about then um, is sort of that piece of legislation that came out of the Environment Act, and that's the Storm Overflows Reduction Plan. So that was published in August last year, 
and set out that water companies will have to improve all storm overflows that discharge into or near designated bathing areas um, and of course protected sites by 2030 with a further along target for 2050 for the rest of storm overflows. So this was controversial because of like how it was brought up in the act because we did want more protections. Um, yeah. Could you talk to me a bit more about that one? Um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a hugely relevant one as we go into a more wet kind of season. Um, <laughs> it is, yeah, it was controversial partly because uh, it was very much debated in Parliament and then uh, the House of Lords managed to put through a number of amendments to the um, all of those storm overflow provisions. Um, so... And this is reflected as well in the way that these sections have been coming into force. So not all of them uh, are coming into force at the same time. The sections that are yet to come into force um, that have to be set um, by commencement regulations. So on such day as the Secretary of State may by regulations appoint um, are the ones that were added by the House of Lords amendments. So they weren't expected in a sense to the same extent so um the department um would probably need more time um to deliver those duties um and can we go into quickly just what some of those duties are uh, yeah We've got a suite of them so section 81 is a sewage um, undertaker duty which is reporting on discharges from storm overflows um, we've got section 82, which is partially enforced. It's uh, the sewerage undertaker has a duty to monitor the water quality. And we've got the reduction of adverse impacts of storm overflows in section 83. Um, section 84 is already in force because that's the one that put a duty on the Secretary of State to uh, publish a report on the situation. Yes, and that then brings us back to our storm overflow reduction plan. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> Full circle. Um, so let's talk a bit more about those provisions we're still waiting on, because there are still a number of them. Um, and as you mentioned, these are the ones that are due to come into force on a day that the Secretary of State may appoint. Um, for England, that's, of course, Therese Coffee, And then for a couple of others, it's the devolved administration's yeah. um, responsibility. I mean, do you think there's been some feet dragging when it comes to this um not necessarily because it is it's very usual for uh, acts to have those provisions uh it's just that basically you let the departments work out their timings and not everything can be put straight into uh force you do need to leave especially when there are duties on industry you need them to be able to have some leeway to put things in place to be in compliance um so, yeah, you, you can't just go, everything will come into force at this date mm -hmm. um, in 20 days. That wouldn't be enough time for people to yeah. put their affairs in order. As we might want it. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah. I mean, and, you know, uh, obviously, depending on the provision, sometimes there might be uh, sort of conveniently pushing it back a little bit. But on the whole, that's kind of difficult to gauge. And then on those provisions, then, um, obviously, we can't talk about all of them in the scope of this because that would take too much time mm. but some of the more interesting that ones then I mean if you had to pull out one 
which jumps out? <laughs> oh, I mean, there's there's a few, right? Like, um, so on waste, we can say the um, the separation of waste. Um, so section fifty seven. Oh yes, um, this has been contentious recently. It hasn't is, it? yeah, and it's been very much in the news. Uh, it's also something that's been again. There's been a lot of. Um, it's a long time coming. It's not. We've had a lot of consultations on um, simplifying um, recycling and um, mm. making sure that we separate our food waste, for example. Um, yes. So this particular section stipulates that recyclable household waste must be collected separately from other household waste um, for recycling or for composting. Um, and also that the Secretary of State will have the power to add further recyclable waste streams. Let's move on and look at um, some of the others then. So air quality, uh, there is a provision in there on environmental recall. Uh, could you tell me a bit more about that one? So under air quality, we've got uh, some powers under Section 74 to 77 that um, mean that the Secretary of State can recall motor vehicles or products that don't meet relevant environmental standards. This is also quite an interesting one at the moment because in that same sort of raft of policy measures that Sunak outlined, um, he did push those dates for cars with combustion engines that were due to be banned from sale by 2030, later on to 2035. Um, So it does seem that the government is actually moving away from this direction and more in favour of motorists ahead of the election. It it does feel like this is maybe not a priority for the government right now. Mm. And talking about priorities, there's still quite a few elements um, of the nature section that we're we're waiting on, isn't there, with a lot of targets um, seemingly being pushed. For example, that date from which developers will be required to deliver this um, biodiversity net gain um, on most schemes in England has slipped from November to January. Um, I mean, can you tell me a bit more about this one? Yeah, so there's a, a recent commencement order that has brought into force partially um, some sections on biodiversity net gain. So that would be sections 98 and onwards. Um, but it's mostly just to bring the regulation making purposes into force. So it's more about we might get at some stage, some regulations that give a bit more, that flesh out the biodiversity net gain requirements, because at the moment, we don't really know what form really they're going to take. And that's not specified in the Act. So what about Ireland then? Because there's a whole section on sort of provisions that the Secretary of State in in Ireland needs to take care of. I mean, but none of them have come into place. Is that right? Uh, I mean, yeah, there's a lot that's in limbo for Ireland right now um, because there's been no first minister or deputy first minister since February 2022. Um, So that meant that caretaker ministers were in place until 28th of October this year. Um, So they still run their departments, but with a very much narrowed remit. So they couldn't bring into force anything new or substantial they just had to follow existing policy and since the 28th of October it's just the Northern Ireland civil servants who are left to lead the departments but understandably they're quite shy about um, signing off on anything new because that's not their role Um, they're responsible for the day-to-day running of government but not 
bringing in anything new and that's expected to carry on until elections are held so maybe in December or January. Wow that is that's a difficult one isn't it because you can understand why civil servants you know don't want to pass through measures like on air quality and the environment because they haven't been voted um, in to do so and that is tricky and I do think um, the OEP um, chief executive Natalie Prosser has written to to the Northern Ireland director as well um, trying to sort of push some action on this and not getting anywhere so far. Yeah, it is difficult because uh, obviously that sometimes runs into issues where as a matter of urgency, something needs to happen. So I think HMRC as well has been um, kind of pushing a little bit because the um, the provisions in place to do with cost of living are not um, fit for purpose anymore, obviously because of recent changes. Um, so that's also an issue. Yeah, I think it's important to highlight that one as well because we get so much news coming out of these developments in like in England and we we focus on that quite heavily. But yeah. you forget sometimes silence isn't the absence um, of news. It's almost you know this is this is quite concerning. Yeah, this is a blocker so. on development and obviously potentially that can put things on hold for quite a while. It could mean that it pushes things back considerably more so than even just the length of time that it was on hold because obviously after that um, it'll take some time for everything to get back to normal pick up where we left off and develop something new so that's an overview then of um, some of the environment act developments over the past two years happy birthday environment act happy second birthday Um, and I'm sure we're going to be terrible twos I'm sure we'll be talking about you for the coming year as well And that's it. We have come to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. My thanks to Tess, Pippa, Shosha and Alice. If you'd like to find out more about any of the issues we've been discussing this week, please head over to endsreport.com and check out ENDS Compliance for all the latest legislative news. And also a quick update. I'm going to be off for the next few weeks, listeners, exploring the wonderful world of biodiversity net gain for an exciting ENDS project that will be unveiled in due course. Have no fear, Shosha will be taking my place as host for the next few weeks, so I leave you in good company. Until then, take care.